the passage that we're looking at this morning, okay? So why don't you guys, once you get a Bible, why don't you guys turn over to James 2 and stand with me as we read, uh, read God's Word here. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, or, yeah, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You guys can take a seat. Today uh, we're going to continue on in our um, look through the book of James uh, this summer with our UMT teams and with our church family. And we are going to look at this idea um, of a particular sin. And we're going to look at the sin of favoritism. The sin of, of favoritism. And so um, I was thinking about this topic and thinking back um, to even the beginning of time, uh, starting at the fall and leading all the way up to d- today, one of the fundamental expressions of sin is elevating oneself over another. So elevating oneself or ele- elevating ourselves over another or another group. That fundamental sin of lifting up and giving special treatment or advantages to one group while suppressing and degrading and humiliating or poorly treating what's called the inferior group. Favoritism, what it does is it seeks to exclude and to separate and to destroy the unity that existed between God and man and man and each other before the fall in the Garden of Eden. History is full of examples of this sin being expressed too full for us to recount or to remember in any one sitting. Maybe you might want to point to the Old Testament example of Moses and the people of God enslaved in Egypt. Maybe you want to point to the suffering and persecution of early Christians. Maybe say, for example, under the Emperor Nero, who burned Christians as candles in his garden to light up his garden at night. Or maybe fast forward. You talk about the favoritism that was experienced during World War II and how the Jews were persecuted based on race and ethnicity 
And even deformities, people were, were persecuted because of that under the Nazi regime. However, you know, we don't have to look elsewhere. We don't have to look in other countries. We can look sadly in our own country and talk about favoritism. Favoritism that was based on race or ethnicity or economical status or educational status even. We could talk about the slavery of African Americans in our country or the battles between immigrants, whether it's Irish or uh, Italian or you name it. Maybe even the stealing of, of land and dignity of the Native Americans in our own country because we wanted their land. See, favoritism is a fundamental expression of sin and of a sinful heart that wants to elevate ourselves, our needs, our desires over that of another person or another group. And so today, as we look at James 2, we're going to look at this idea of favoritism and we're going to see that while favoritism is clearly a grievous sin before the eyes of God and it breaks his heart, he puts before us its righteous opposite, which is loving each other and loving other people like Christ. And so we're going to see two things pit against one another. It's just not the bad news of calling out this grievous sin, but it's also putting on something, the opposite, which is the Christ-like love of loving one another. So James, what he does, he first begins chapter 2 with a negative command, then he will go to a positive command, and then come back to the negative again. And so let's look at the first one. It's a negative command, and it's in verses 1 through 7 if you're looking in your Bibles. And the command is simple. It says, don't show favoritism. Do not show favoritism. It's one simple, heart-penetrating command And let me read it again for us just so that we're clear. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And as we were talking about earlier, James, we know, is speaking to believers. And he's speaking to believers that are experiencing some type of of suffering, some type of trials. And he is encouraging them to remain steadfast, to endure He's saying we need to have stick to itness as Christians, even in the midst of these various trials of many kinds. And in that, as he tells them to hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, stay strong. And as you stay strong, do not show favoritism. Because we're looking at these gospel centered commands. These gospel-centered actions. So how does the gospel transform the way that we live? And James is saying one way it happens is the way that we treat one another. And it's seen here in that negative command. So going back to that command, he's telling us not to show favoritism. And sadly, that's something that probably we don't need to find for us. It's something so second nature to us. Something we show all the time, probably, or did before we were believers, And maybe we've experienced it from other people. Maybe it's been racially motivated or economically motivated or or educationally motivated. I don't know what it is, but maybe we've experienced it. And probably even as believers, we've dished it out to other people, shown favoritism. But for clarity's sake, let me read what one pastor says as he defines um, this idea of favoritism. He says this, Believers should not prefer one person over another because of their appearance their face, their clothes, or any other aspect of their outward appearance. 
And so there we have favoritism defined in one way, and we'll talk about it more as James opens up with an illustrative story, kind of a hypothetical situation. He tells it in verses 2 through 7, and I'm not going to read it because we read it already, but I want to kind of summarize what's going on here. There is a church meeting going on, and James says, suppose that two different types of people come into this church meeting. And the first one we see is one man that's wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And there's a second man that comes in, a poor, poor, poor person that's wearing shabby clothes or torn up clothes or tattered clothes. And so we have two opposite types of people coming into this church meeting. And for us, we might imagine that. Say, for example, um, uh, we had a church meeting here and someone just got done shopping at the walk here at the outlets. They got the nicest clothes, the newest fashions. They put them on, came to church. And there was another person, maybe say a homeless person that's been walking around on, um, on Atlantic Avenue here or living under the boardwalk. They both come into this meeting. And that's the scenario that we find ourselves in in this hypothetical story. So two people, very, very different from outward looks. If you look at them, they're very different. And there are two very different reactions, James tells us. The first one, what do they do? Well, the audience or the people in the church, they pay attention to the rich man. They say, no, no, you come over here and you have this special seat right in front. You have a good place to sit, as the text says. But what do they say to the poor man? They say to the poor man, you go stand over there. You go stand over in that corner or you come sit at my feet. And presumably that's a place not of honor, not of respect, not of love. If we remember back in that day, the feet were dirty, right? That's why it was so radical that Jesus himself would humble himself to clean the feet, to wash the feet of the disciples. And so this is, this is degrading to the poor person, James is saying. And James says that if you have done this, verse 4, he says that you have made distinctions and that you have become judges with evil thoughts. In other words, you have shown favoritism. You have become judges with evil thoughts. And he says this is clearly a sin. It's a grievous sin before God. And God wants us to see the heinousness of this or the evilness of favoritism because what it's doing here is it's saying, one person saying to another, say that homeless person comes in here, you're not as valuable as this person right here, the rich person. You're not as lovable. You're not, you don't have as much dignity as this person here, the rich person. And you know, the irony is that James says, he points out in his illustration that the people who are guilty of showing favoritism towards the rich, have actually been recipients of the same hateful favoritism from the rich to them. That's the irony of it. They've been shown the favoritism. You would have thought they'd have been like, no, I don't like this, so I'm not going to show it. But having been shown that favoritism against them, they show it to somebody else. Verses 6 and 7, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And so he's saying, guys, there's, there's a disconnect here. It's not matching up. You just received that hateful um, favoritism from them. Why would you do it back? And to boot, James goes deeper. And he says, you know, guys, this is not the way that the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is, is, is an upside-down kingdom. 
If you were with us earlier, we've been looking at the book of Matthew and talking about how Jesus a lot of times takes these thoughts about the world and what the kingdom of God would be like, and he flips them upside down. And he's doing again here. He's saying that's not the way that it works inside of the church. Do you know that those who are poor in, in, in monetary things may be rich in faith? He uses the poor things of the world to shame the rich. He turns it upside down to show off how great he is, to how great our God is. And so he's calling them out, and he's hammering it to them. And he's saying favoritism goes directly against the fact that we are all made in the image of God, all with inherent dignity, value, and worth. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, if you're educated or, or, not, edu- or, or not educated, or poor or rich. It doesn't matter, he says. You were created in the image of God with inherent worth and dignity and value. And when you show favoritism, you're getting rid of all that. You're doing the opposite. You're spitting in the face of God who's shown us grace. So maybe let's talk about a few application points. Some of us may think, well, when we become Christians, favoritism is gone. It doesn't mess with us anymore. But sadly, favoritism is is well and alive in the church today. How or, or in what ways, may you ask? Will we still struggle with the rich versus the poor? Those who maybe have something to offer us monetarily versus the poor who cannot? Maybe we show favoritism to the one who gives a larger tithe or a gift for a building campaign, or a special offering, or a special project, while the person that can't donate to that or donates a few dollars to it, we just say, nah, not as important. We may not say that with our mouth, but we say that with our actions. Maybe those who are able to contribute financially to a church plant like this, or valuing financial gifts over spiritual gifts, saying financial gifts are more important than other spiritual gifts that might be expressed here, even though a person doesn't have any money. Maybe another thing that we experience is uh, a lot of times we plant churches in what? We plant churches in wealthy, resourced areas only sometimes. We say, you know what? Planting a church among the poor, it's just too hard. It's never going to sustain itself. So we're just going to stick to the cities. We're going to stick to the suburbs. And that's where we're going to plant our church. And that's an expression, I think, of favoritism. Another, another way that favoritism is expressed in the church is maybe um, there are more desirable spiritual gifts or natural talents versus those that are less desirable. You know, we all have them, right? Maybe the ones that can preach or teach, the ones that can do things up on stage, maybe play the instruments, and we forget about those who show their spiritual gifts through, you know, behind the curtains, behind the closed doors, serving you know, we had Step of Faith here last week, and they're just servants, man. And they are serving behind the scenes, giving their life away. And sometimes those people, we can show uh, favoritism towards the other people who say, I have the gift of, of preaching or teaching or the gift of leading worship because we see them as more valuable and the serving gifts as less valuable. Maybe it's the youth versus the elderly. Maybe it's a church that says, look, we favor, it, we favor the elderly because they must be wise and mature. And the youth inherently must be immature and not ready for any leadership position. Or flip that. Churches that say the youth 
must be the ones who are innovative, the ones who are excited, the ones who are getting out there, doing the work. And the elderly, they're just stuck in their ways. They're just stale and stagnant, not willing to help out, not willing to step out in faith. You see how that can play both sides? Favoritism expressed. Well, again, maybe it's education. Those who are educated versus those who are uneducated. A lot of times in PCA circles, we struggle with that. Those who have a bachelor's or a master's versus those who maybe have never completed high school. Show favorites. That's what we do. Maybe for some of us who are still in school, maybe high school, we see it in those who are attractive versus those who are unattractive. We show favoritism towards those who have the, the features and the, the, um, the personality that we like and we want to be around. Maybe it's the preps versus the jocks, the Greeks versus the non-Greeks, the artsy versus the athletes. Guys, I could go on and on and on about ways that this is expressed in the church, among church folks, among fellow Christians, that we continue to do this, even though we have been shown such grace and such mercy by God himself. So what do we do? Well, I think James, in his, his, uh, his um, right-to-it attitude, he says, basically, we call it like it is. It's sin. And we need to call it like it is, say it's sin, and repent of it. We need to come to Jesus like we did in the confession of sins today. We need to ask forgiveness and return to him in his ways and to put on that Christ-like love that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. But just come to a place of repentance this morning. And if God is bringing up something to your mind, an example of the way in which you have shown favoritism, I pray that you would repent of that and plead with you to do business with the Lord as we are here today. So James, he gives not only that first commandment to not show partiality, but he also gives the opposite, right? And we're going to look at that to really show Christian love towards everyone. Verse 8. So as we turn to verse 8, uh, James, he's given us more of kind of a positive command towards believers, towards Christians, and talking about what is the opposite of showing favoritism. Verse 8 says this, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And so we've already talked about this idea of the royal, royal law, if you've been with us. We've been walking through that, and as we talk about it through James Pastor Santo talked about the perfect law or the law of liberty, the law that gives life from James 1.25. It's not this law that brings death or separation because we could not perfectly keep God's law. It's not what, that's not what we're talking about. We know that only Jesus could perfectly keep the law on our behalf. Rather, James defines it here as the law that gives freedom and the law that gives joy. It is the guide that God gives us to our pursuit of righteousness or holy living. It's the law that Pastor Santa talked about that keeps us safe and keeps us happy living in God's ways. It keeps us from the misery of sin. You know, oftentimes an example is given about parents in this. Parents give their kids certain rules and laws, if you want to call them that, to keep them safe, to keep them happy. When we tell our kids and our teens, hey, God says that you should not have sex before marriage. We do that for a purpose. And it's because for their good and for their happiness and for their joy. And when that happens before marriage, what it does is it creates all kind of havoc 
in that person's life. And we don't want to see our son or daughter go through that. We don't want to see our son or daughter go through the heartbreak that they experience if they sleep with someone before they're married. And that's God's law. That's his, his, his instruction to us. The same thing with favoritism. When we show favoritism, it leads to death and destruction and separation in our relationships with one another. And when God says, don't show favoritism, he's doing that for our good. Not to be a killjoy. Not to say, hey, I want you to have fun. But to say, this is for your good. This is so that you may have rich and lasting relationships with, with among brothers and sisters in Christ. And so God doesn't leave us guessing what the royal law is because he defines it in verse 8. And he defines it as the golden rule, right? We, ca- we kind of commonly call that, or as Pastor Santa talked about, the second greatest commandment, loving our neighbors as ourself. Loving our neighbors as ourself. How many times have we heard that growing up in the church? Many of us. Or maybe even you're a new Christian and you've read that in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to what one commentator says about this. He kind of explaining what it means. He says, number one, loving your neighbor as yourself requires an openness to friendship with any neighbor, regardless of that neighbor's wealth, position, status, influence, race, appearance, attractiveness, dress, abilities, or personality. Number two, loving your neighbor as yourself means treating others' concerns as important as your own. And number three, loving our neighbors as ourselves means treating each other's needs as needs that we have in common as neighbors. That's quite a task. That's quite a task to treat each other in such a way, to love each other in those ways. And thank God for his help through the Holy Spirit that helps us and other believers that keep us accountable in loving each other well, like Jesus, and not showing favoritism. And James, he's told us what it doesn't look like, as far as loving each other, with showing favoritism. He, he's, he's telling us what it does look like, but I want to explore kind of two, two ways, maybe, of application that our UMT teams are going to get into this week in showing love like Jesus. One is showing love uh, to our neighbors through acts of relief or charity. We're going to talk about that idea this week, showing acts of love and acts of charity. For example, let me give you one example from my early days here. Early days, as I've only been here eight months, but uh, my early days here, I just kind of would walk the streets of Atlantic City, meeting people, learning the city, learning kind of the ins and outs, talking to people. Well, one day I was on Atlantic Avenue right here and just walking down, and um, praying for an opportunity to just talk to somebody. I met a guy named Kenny. Kenny is a, a homeless guy who lives um, on the streets. Uh, he is disabled, and uh, he was kind of limping along, and, and he, he saw me and asked kind of for some money. And so, you know what? I was like, all right, let's, let's walk for a little bit. Let's talk. And I got to know him, got to know his story. I could tell that he was disabled by the way that he was walking. It was real hard for him to get from point A to point B. He told me that he was diabetic and they didn't have the necessary um, uh, insulin stuff to, to help him regulate at that moment. And so he was in bad shape. And so I sat with him in the bus terminal, just had a conversation, got to know him, got to hear some of his story, asked him questions. I didn't really talk too much. 
but just kind of learned his story. We went over and had a cup of coffee at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I think I got to pray with him. And he was so thankful, so thankful just the opportunity, someone to sit down with him and to listen to him. More than, you know, the money that he needed for whatever he was going to use it for, he was so thankful for a person taking the time to show an act of charity, an act of relief, an act of love, and just a simple cup of coffee and a conversation. Maybe the Lord is going to provide an, an opportunity to love someone like Christ in that way this week. And I think God constantly provides us with these kinds of opportunities. The question is, are we ready? Are our eyes open to the opportunities that God is putting before us? And that's why it's so important for us to have a, a consistent walk with God so that we are ready when God says, look, here's an opportunity I'm putting right before you. Are you going to engage this person? Are you going to love them like I do? Maybe another, another opportunity that we're going to talk about this week is loving our neighbor through acts of development. Through acts of development. See, development more focuses in on, on helping move beyond these small acts of charity, beyond the cup of water, beyond the fresh hot meal, beyond that cup of coffee, and helping kind of a, a get them to a place of sustainability, of being discipled in the church of being self-feeders, those who are feeding themselves the word of God and walking with them and pursuing him. Well, an example of this, um, I want to talk about the, the opportunity of ESL, English as a Second Language. I've been going to ESL class here in Atlantic City, the public library, and uh, this is kind of my first experience with ESL, and uh, I, I kind of was there. It's a small class, people from all different races and ethnicities there, um, you have all, all over the world, I could list off country after country after country where these folks come from. And, uh, and I just got to, to be able to be um, friends with some of these guys and girls throughout the, the winter and throughout the spring. Got to help kind of teach them English, teach them a skill that they could use. And, you know, maybe it didn't seem like all that big of a deal. But think about it, if you were in a different country, if you were in a different country and you didn't speak the language at all, or maybe you spoke it minimally, but you need to speak that language in order to get education, in order to get a job, in order to live and to do life in this new country, in this new area. And so that's an act of development, it's an act of showing God's love to say, look, I'm going to come alongside of you and help teach you just the basics of English so that you can get along here. Not only that you can you know, have a job or that you can get education or whatever else that we take for granted, but also that you can be a part of a church like this where we can, we can, he can come in and, and, and listen to a sermon. He can come in and, and, and not only speak Spanish, but also speak English and be a part of a, of a service like that. That's a way of developing. That's a way of showing the love of Christ. And I pray that if I ever was called to a foreign country, that I have someone come to me and do uh, whatever language as a second language for me, helping me out. That's a way of loving our neighbors like Jesus or loving our neighbors like ourselves. And maybe you'll get an experience to participate in one of those opportunities this week. I pray so. Or in, wherever you are in your context or in your job or your city. Well, we have two powerful commands, right? Don't show favoritism, but rather show its opposite, which is Christ-like love talking about how we relate horizontally with one another, how Jesus transforms that. But then he also kind of turns our attention, James does, to the end game, to the end of time. And we're going to look at this idea of God's judgment of our actions as believers. And we're going to look at that in verse 9 through 13. 
9-13. So he says, very clearly, no bones about it, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. You are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. James, there's no sugarcoating about it. He just says, look, you do this and you are in sin. And thus the reason, the need for repentance and coming back to the Lord. He wants us to know that showing favoritism, it's not only sin, but it's also breaking God's law. And that is a big deal. It's not just like an oopsie. You know, my son, he'll do something and uh, he'll just kind of look at us and say, oopsie, you know, like, sorry. And uh, he doesn't want us to see that sin this way. It's not just a, I messed up, I made a mistake. It is breaking God's law in a significant way. And James wants us to see that seriousness. And he takes it to the extreme when he says in verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable for all of it. And then he goes on to say, hey, if you, if you didn't murder, but you did commit adultery, then you break the whole law. And you're kind of scratching your head. That's intense. And you're kind of reading that James, kind of like, oh, you're joking, right? You're just kind of exaggerating things, right? But he says no. And he gives this situation as if someone could actually do this, to, you know, first of all. As if someone could say, I've, I've done everything except for this one commandment. Kind of like the rich young ruler, right? But that, that's, a, that's a lie because Jesus exposes that with the rich young ruler. No, you didn't just break it at one place. You've broken all kind of commandments. But suppose, he says, if you did do this, one, one command you broke, you become accountable, guilty of breaking the whole law. And so if I look at a girl lustfully one time, I am guilty of breaking the whole law, James? Or if I cheat on one test at school, one measly test or one quiz, I'm guilty of breaking the whole law? How can that be? Well, one commentator, he explains it this way. He says this, Although God's law has many facets, it is essentially one, being the expression of the character and will of God himself. To violate the law at any one point is not to violate only one commandment only. It is to violate the will of God and to contradict the character of God. As a means of kind of like a a good word picture, one commentator did this. He talked about we can't really pick and choose and say, oh, I've done all these other commandments, but this one. And so I'm okay. I've only only broken one. He says it's more like this. Imagine a, a sheet of a glass window. And taking a brick or a stone and throwing it at that glass window. What does it do? It shatters, right? Don't think about like the the windshields, which kind of are are a little more shatterproof. Think about the old school glass that would just shatter in tons of pieces, breaking the whole thing. It kind of of reminds me of uh, Home Alone. It's one of my favorite movies. I think it's Home Alone 2, where uh, a little, um, oh, what's his name? Come on, help me. Who's the guy, little guy? Yeah, yeah, Kevin. He takes that brick when the, when the uh, robbers are in the, the, the kid's store, and he throws it at the glass, and the glass shatters, and the alarm goes off, and they get in trouble with the police and all that kind of stuff. So James is saying, you break one thing, you break it all, because it's a unified whole. Now, I don't think what James is saying, well, oops, you know, I showed favoritism, so I might as well go, de- you know, I showed, sorry, I showed favoritism to the rich, And so I might as well go down to Atlantic Avenue and gun down everybody I see. 
I don't think he's going to that extreme. He's not, and never in the Bible, James nor any other biblical author advocate a lackadaisical attitude towards sin. But rather, James is trying to show the seriousness of breaking God's law and being lawbreakers before a holy and righteous and good God. He wants us to get that. It's no small thing. Now, as we turn to the topic of judgment in verse 12 and 13, James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, you may be confused when you hear James talking about judgment. Maybe like, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. What kind of judgment is he talking about? I thought, you know, as Christians, we're good. We accept Jesus into our hearts and our lives, and we become Christians, and we're good. What's James talking about? Well, it's clear from the text that James is talking about some kind of judgment that believers will face at the end of time, and it's according to what? It's according to the law of liberty or freedom, which we've been talking about. So it's really how our lives and how our actions of loving others as ourselves how our lives line up to that. It's an issue of stewardship. How do we steward our lives as believers? And we know that if we are in Christ, we need not fear condemnation on the last day because we are covered in the blood of Jesus and in his perfect righteousness is our record. We don't have to worry about that. We will not be judged according to the law that brings death, but the law of freedom, James says here. But again, that doesn't mean that we take it, that, that judgment lightly or carelessly. James doesn't advocate that. But to drill this into our heads, James, he gives us both an, an encouraging um, statement, but also a warning. He says, look, if you don't show mercy, mercy is not going to be shown to you. So if you show favoritism to the rich, for example, then you will not receive a merciful judgment to God. But he says, however, if you do show mercy, mercy will be shown to you. And let me explain this a little more by looking at a few uh, quotes here. Let me read one to you. It says, mercy should be the mark of the regenerated person or the Christian. If it is present in the believer's life, he will have nothing to fear at the judgment. It is in this sense that mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, he's not saying in the sense of good works equals salvation, show mercy and I'm good, I'm saved. But he is saying that it should be the fruit of a believer's life. Someone who has been shown mercy through the the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, should actually show mercy to other people. It should be a fruit in that person's life. That the Holy Spirit is helping us to show mercy to my brother and my sister regardless of their race, regardless of their their situation, regardless of them being poor or rich, it should be a fruit in my life, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Another pastor clarifies it this way, saying believers fail. So he's saying, look, we're going to fail at this. Yet by faith in the Redeemer, God's mercy to his children triumphs over judgment we deserve. In Christ, mercy triumphs. For disciples, God's mercy is always his last word. And so we need not fear that judgment. Now that still means that we need to think about how we're living our lives, how we are stewarding our lives. 
Are we showing mercy to other people? Are we loving people like Jesus did and does? And if we are true believers, it should show a reflection of that in our lives. Mercy should be shown to other people. And yet at the same time, God's mercy for those of us who are believers, it will win. It will triumph. And that is the gospel. That's an encouraging word. No, we don't show mercy perfectly. Neither before we were Christians nor after we are Christians. We don't show mercy to others perfectly. And that's thank God that Jesus came and did that perfectly. He showed mercy, mercy perfectly in every situation, in every interaction, in every encounter. And when God looks at us as Christians, as his sons and daughters, he sees that record and not our own. And that's the refreshing gospel truth. And that's the refreshing gospel truth that helps us to fight even that sin of favoritism today in our own hearts. And to put on that righteousness of loving one another as Jesus does. That's what helps us. So the gospel is very much in the book of James, as as Santo was talking about earlier as we looked in, in um, chapter 1. It's all throughout it. Yes, it may be concerned about actions and how we are living, but he is concerned how the gospel transforms who we are in our horizontal relationships, our relationships with one another. And that's why it talks about ministry to the poor, to the widow, to the distressed. It talks about holiness, seeking that first in our own lives. And here it talks about putting off the sinful nature as believers and putting on the fruit of the Spirit and how we love one another. The reason we can do that is because Jesus has made us new people in Christ and continues to make us more and more into his image each day. And praise God that he is doing that. And so as we come to a close, we started talking about the idea of favoritism and how it clearly is a sin before God, a grievous sin. Something that we should repent of today and all the days of our lives as we show it. Pray that God would search your heart, the innermost parts of your heart, to see where you might be showing favoritism today, even as a believer. It may not be something overt, or it may not be something as, as, uh, as clear as the issue of racism or, or the Nazis and the Jews, but it may be in the depth of your heart being shown in ways that it, when God shows you it, it's like, oh man, that's there and that's ugly. And I want to take it to Jesus. And I want to take it to the cross where I am forgiven, and he is going to help me through the Holy Spirit to put on this Christ-like love, to love our neighbors, to love those in the church and outside of the church, to serve them, to do life with them, even when it's hard, even when we pound it out, even when we grind, grind up against one another, even when we disagree, to show that love that Christ has shown us. And I pray that uh, you would take this message to heart as I've been trying to, as I've been preparing it, and, uh, and as we continue on in our look at the book of James and seeing how the gospel gets applied in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that it is. Uh, we learned probably the verse when we were kids that it's a light unto our path. It's a lamp to our feet. 
God, we thank you that your word, it feeds us spiritually so that on Sundays as we hear your word preached, that we can ingest it and take it in, that we can get strong and we can go out to live for you by faith and not by fear or not by favoritism. God, search our hearts. See if there would be any grievous way within us and lead us to life everlasting in you, Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you this week, whether we're here serving in the city or back home, wherever that would be, in our jobs, in our families, in our relationships. Help us to live for you, Jesus, we pray. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday's sermon was preached by the Reverend Peter Eck, Assistant Pastor at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. New City's Sunday sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Santa Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.